This podcast is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Learn more at nypl.org slash podcast. And to make sure you never miss an episode, find us and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Welcome to the New York Public Library podcast, where each week we bring you conversations with world-renowned authors, artists, and thinkers, recorded in front of a live audience in New York City. This week, we're taking you back in the archives to 2009, when Lou Reed, Maureen, Mo Tucker, and Doug Ewell of the Velvet Underground reunited at the library for a discussion with Rolling Stone journalist David Frick. In this provocative conversation, the three legendary musicians talk about strange performance venues, the energy of New York, and how it felt to go where no musician had gone before. That record, that song, is one of the reasons why I wanted to make my life in music, and it, which is one more reason why it's an honor to be able to say the words, music, and rhythm of the Velvet Underground, Lou Reed, Maureen Tucker, and Doug Ewell. Uh, not here, but also vital to the story, the late Nico, John Cale, and the late, very great, Sterling Morrison. Now, part of the occasion is um, celebrating this new book, New York Art, The Velvet Underground, which is an amazing volume, but it's kind of an anniversary as well. It's actually a little strange to say this out loud, but on December 11th of 1965, the Velvet Underground paid, played their first paying gig at Summit High School. So we're practically 44 years to the week. And from what I understand, you only made 80 bucks. Um, <laughs> it's true. And they were the bottom of the bill. Do you remember at all what your ambitions were as a band? Obviously, it's your first paying gig. It's the first time you've played outside New York. Um, any recollection of, were you more shocked than the uh, kids that you played for? <laughs> I don't think so. I was shocked because <laughs> my drums fell apart. The drums fell apart? Yeah. Good way to start. That was the beginning of my career. <laughs> <laughs> How did you actually get the gig? Because it was through Al Aronowitz, um, the writer. And this was actually before Andy had seen you. How did uh, Al come to know about you? Oh yeah, that Barbara Rubin was a mutual friend of Andy and Al. And she, brought, she had brought Andy to see us at the bazaar. But I don't she know. Brought she brought Andy. Okay. No. <laughs> <laughs> She brought someone who liked us. <laughs> I'm just impressed that your first gig was at a high school. Uh, we played the Cafe Bazaar. No, we, that was... No, that was, that that was, was two that weeks was a, afterwards. That was after. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing you remember, Summit, <laughs> you care Summit remember. New Jersey. <laughs> well, I guess it's the, the thing is that you think of what the pop and rock scene was in 1965 and 66, and 
you clearly had real ambitions as songwriters, as musicians, and doing something that was not of the norm. And yet, you threw yourself into um, you threw yourself into something that was kind of risky. You know, you were you were doing something that people had not heard, and certainly as events proved initially, we're not quite prepared for. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. But um, we, uh, we were around a lot of filmmakers and musicians and people who were part of what they call the underground then, and very much part of that. So, playing a high school in Jersey, we thought of it a kind of a different way. But we never got paid before, right? <laughs> That's the first time I played with you guys. I don't know if you'd gotten paid before. No. Well, apparently, it. Angus McLeese actually quit because you were getting paid. No, he quit because he said, you mean to tell me, they tell us when we start, and then when we're playing, they tell us when to stop. <laughs> and he left. That was his line in the sand. <laughs> That's hardcore. That is very hard. And those are the people we were with, so we're very much like, I thought we were easy going because we said okay. <laughs> but it would turn out to be a lot different. How would you describe what the shows that you played when you were playing to the underground films, when you're doing things with, uh, with Angus and Barbara Rubin. What were the shows when you improvised with films? We, um, you know, in those days, the movies that they made didn't have sound, so they would get us, and we would sit in back of the screen and play along with whatever it was. Did you walk in with a particular idea of how to start a piece or what the no. film was? It was no. just plug in and go? No, no. Sometimes, I mean, we knew who the... We didn't do just anybody's film. Yeah. You know, it wasn't Disney. <laughs> no, Jack Smith was not Disney. You know, so... That, that's the background we had. Would you incorporate actual... Some of the songs you were writing at that point as well? Because heroin and uh, all tomorrow's no, the, parties were the all song, the songs were separate from these other things were just for movies so really the, that high school and the cafe bazaar was the first time you truly played those songs in public yeah i mean uh, i don't know that the high school counts for anything <laughs> you know it's um we were pretty desperate at the Cafe Bazaar, one of the things, actually in the book, there are a few photos of that run, which I found really fascinating because I'd never seen them before. And what struck me was that the place, you were playing not even on a stage, you were on the floor. And there were a few tables around, and you kind of had this space to, to play whatever you wanted, and yet you still got fired for playing Black Angel's death song. When Andy brought his people down, he actually increased the audience that you were playing. There was no audience. <laughs> but, uh, and we, were, we weren't being paid, we were being fed. I think we did five sets a night. Free, free hamburger. For free hamburger. Were the burgers any good? 
It was a tourist trap, David. In other words, no. (laughs) But uh, some Navy guys were there one night, and we we were playing what we play, and they said, don't play anything like that again. So we did. (laughs) And all hell broke loose. You know, chairs flying and, you know, that kind of stuff. People, you know, if you had long hair then, uh, you were looking for a fight. So a lot of people were looking for a fight. I think one of the things that is interesting about that period that people don't take into account now is actually how small the scene so-called was, that it was not, you know, we can fill this room tonight the way we do, but the, the audiences that you played for were not very big. They were very select, and they were people that were, in a sense, fellow travelers, you know, people who were in those scenes making the films and could relate to what you were singing and writing about. Did you feel that that was an audience to build on, or did you feel you were basically playing to friends? We weren't that advanced. We were just playing. We were, we were playing to play. Nobody had any plans for anything. You know, it was, uh, but, we, were, uh, we were playing for us, really. Yeah. Was, that's what we like to do. And there was a background in back of it that made it that way. But you also, you certainly believed that there was a future in this because the songs that you were writing, as you said the other night, you were writing heroin, writing All Tomorrow's Parties while you had a day job over at Pickwick Records writing The Ostrich and Cycle Annie. You clearly believed that there was some kind of future in what you were writing and the music that would, in a sense, have to go with it. Well, you know, it's... um, The the songs that became the Velvet Underground songs, you know, I was like an English major. So I had had this idea about, you know, to write that kind of stuff to a rock song. That was over there, and then for them over here was straight stuff. But I never thought this would... I wasn't, wasn't thinking about accomplishing anything. It never got that far. It was just, it would be great to even be able to play it. Were you surprised that when Andy saw you and decided that this was something he wanted to be involved in, that suddenly the step had gotten a lot bigger? Warhol was one of the greatest people I've ever met in my life. And without him, you know, it's, it's kind of inconceivable where it would have gone. You know, because he was like the big protector. How would you characterize his role? Because as a producer, he let you do what you wanted to do. He put you in front of audiences. He really, he, for, for him, this was not merely an art project. We, well, we played all these galleries. We couldn't get hired anywhere, so if he had a, a, a gallery opening, he took all of us. That, that's how that worked. And um, he fed everybody. And when they hired us to make a record, it wasn't because of us, it was because of him. They didn't know us. They thought he was a lead guitarist or something. <laughs> They're incredibly stupid. And 
they never listen to the record. They never listen to anything. They're just stupid. And he just said, whatever you do, don't change anything. And so he was like the guard dog. And they say, how did he produce it? Well, he really did. He would be there and he'd say, oh, that's great. And they said, well, what about, no, no, that's great. <laughs> and it stayed that way. <laughs> and that's why the records sound the way they sound. That's why nothing got changed because Andy said, you don't have, don't change anything. Leave it alone. Just do exactly the exact same thing you're doing. Don't let them near it. And that was the, you know, the unifying principle. Yeah. There it was. You joined. You played that first gig in December, and you saw the band a couple of weeks later. By March, you were recording the first record. What was your? In one day. In one day. <laughs> Maureen, what was your impression of Andy? Because you really sort of were dropped into this maelstrom pretty quickly. My impression of Andy? Yeah. Did you say? Just, um, on a, just on a day-to-day -day basis. Oh, I loved Andy. I had a lot of fun with Andy. Um, Lou had a much closer relationship with him and a much more scholastic relationship <laughs> than I did. But I really, I really liked Andy a lot. Yeah, I did a little typing for Andy. <laughs> <laughs> that was helpful. What it was was Andy had done this thing. It was so fantastic. He wanted 24 hours in the life of, what, Undine? Whoever it was. Undine and or Bridget, I and think. And everybody else. So he was trying to get somebody to type this thing up. And so... Mo was typing it up, but she didn't like some of the language. <laughs> so Maureen would take it out. <laughs> but I left the proper number of spaces so they could go back. <laughs> dash, dash, dash. <laughs> so you were actually it's Andy's editor as well. Well, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's still published. It's called A. Yeah. Um... And you can read it. Um, Andy, actually, I was one day, I was maybe the third day I was doing that, I was typing, and the word had gotten to Andy, I guess, that Mo wasn't putting in the icky words. <laughs> and Andy came over and he, he sat on the desk and said, Oh, oh Mo, um, someone said you're not, you're not putting in the dirty words. And I said, No. And he said, Well, I don't remember exactly, of course. Well, why not? And I said, Well, you know, I don't like that. And I said, Oh, okay. Can you put the first letter? And I said, no. <laughs> um, last night you were talking a bit about your experiences at uh, Pickwick Records, and one of the, the things that you said that I didn't realize was that when the Primitives, which was yourself, Tony Conrad, John and Walter DeMaria, De went out to promote songs like Cycle Annie and the Ostrich, you actually didn't play gigs, but you lip-synced to the records. Our one record. Your one record. Yes. Um, and none of them were on it, except me. Well, that was easy for them then. They didn't have to learn anything. <laughs> Do the ostrich. Put your head down on the floor and have someone step on it. Do the ostrich. Do the ostrich. <laughs> Put your head between your knees. Well, you can give us a verse, but... That was it. <laughs> you heard it. Um, 
Because actually, Doug, not to be left out here, you told me a story this afternoon that's not a little too dissimilar to that, which is how you really got first started in the rock and roll business. Well, they were um, looking for someone to, with long hair to play in front of a, to dance in front of a band, the Barbarians. This was in the Boston area, right? In Boston, the Barbarians. And uh, my roommate and I and a couple of other people got dragged down there. And uh, the Barbarians didn't show up. But we started playing with their instruments and eventually wound up in a band. And that's kind of the way I got into rock and roll. And this was the Barbarians who recorded Are You a Boy or Are You a Girl for Laurie Records. So look it up. Um, Maureen, did you ever actually see Angus play? Um... I'm not sure if I've seen him play. I, I had met him. I mm -hmm. met him a couple of times, but I don't think so, actually. I guess I just want to try and get some sort of a sense of your drumming style versus his apparently freeform concept of uh, keeping time and being in a band. Because obviously, what you were doing, it had a lot to do with the way these songs sounded and just that beat. It's so steady, it's so firm, and it's it's, it refuses to, refuses to go away. It's well, a really, it's a really powerful concept. That's the kind of drumming concept. I like to listen to, so that's what I tried to do. Because you actually once told me that your two big influences, well, two of your big influences were Charlie Watts and the Nigerian drummer Olatunji, who did mm -hmm. Drums of Passion. Did you try to create some sort of a drumming style? Because I don't, did you even play with a band before you played with the Velvets? I played with a uh, little, a cover band, like we had one show on Long Island. Um, we played, we rehearsed for about a week and played at a bar where the next night the drummer got shot. <laughs> so I was lucky. <laughs> but that's, that's my only experience besides playing with these guys. When, uh, I guess, Sterling knew your brother, uh, Jim, what did he say in terms of what they wanted or needed? Well, Angus had quit, and they had got, gotten the um, high school job and needed a drummer fast. So Sterling uh, supposedly said to Lou, Tucker's sister plays drums. <laughs> and Lou came... She's got a car. <laughs> She's got a car. <laughs> I didn't hear that before. <laughs> So Lou came to see if I could actually keep a beat, came to my house, and the next, I don't know, we practiced two or three times maybe, probably once. And that's how we got started. But I was still temporary in, for, in and my you, mind and for you quite were playing a while. And you were playing standing up? No, uh-uh. When, when did that come about? Um, I think when we started playing, um, like at galleries, as, as Lou was saying, that kind of uh, improvised stuff. It just didn't, it didn't fit, in my opinion, to be going, you know, tick, tick, tick. So I wanted to sound, I wanted a deeper sound also. And I was not really, not really trying to sound African, but sort of in a way trying mm -hmm. to. How much did, Lou, how much did her playing, not influence, but just give you a feeling for the kind of rhythms you wanted in the songs that you were writing? Obviously, some of them were already going, but... Um, when you got to White Light and Sister Ray and, and things like The Gift, you know, that beat is really essential. It's seminal. There, I can't imagine any of that music any other way. 
I've, I've tried since then to get a drummer to do what she did, and it's impossible, they can't. Yeah. But one of the big things was getting a hi-hat out of there, and uh, what she was doing was very tribal and um, incredible amount of unrelenting energy pushing at the thing. And if we sped up, she sped up, instead of having a drummer who will sit there trying to hold the beat down, our songs speed up and slow down all over the place. Because you even said, On this, purpose, you you even know, said this, like, this afternoon that your favorite place was to stand next to her drums to play. I always stand next to drums. I love being, feeling the drum. I remember when we played the dumb. Remember you had a problem with the drums, so when I got garbage cans? <laughs> they worked pretty good, too. <laughs> and then think about steel drummers. Yeah. There it was, except in a rock, rock situation. Every night there was a little pile of garbage under the... Un, we had used <laughs> so garbage. Knocking it out as used, you were playing. Yeah, used garbage pails I used. And each night we'd clean it out, of course. And then next night the pile was smaller. So finally all the garbage was gone. And there was no pile. <laughs> this is the glamour of the avant-garde. Um, I'd like to talk about Sterling for a bit because we, we talked a little bit about it this afternoon, but he is, he's essential and in many ways he doesn't always get the recognition and the affirmation that he deserves. What, how would you characterize him as, just as a person, you know, what that person did as then reflected in his guitar playing? You know, what was sort of the measure of the man? Well, I love Sterl. I've known him since I was 10. He's like my brother. Um, I think he was a... I really like his, really like his lead guitar playing, but he's also... A, and I didn't really think about it at the time, but I think he's a really, uh, a really good rhythm player. I very often tried to hear what he was doing and do something along the same line. How essential was he to the... Just the, again, the concept and the execution of the songs as they started, as you played them. He was a great guy to have as the other guitar. I mean, his rhythm parts were fantastic. And it always had this particular sound between him and Mo locked together like that. That was an amazing thing to be able to play against. It was like the greatest luck in the world, having that kind of lock going on. So. Wherever me or Kale went, there was a place to come back to. Yeah. They weren't shattered or anything. Because it was sort of an interest. it's almost like a selfless way to play guitar because he wasn't really into the playing a lot of leads. That rhythm was very important to him. Mm -hmm. And as you told me once before, he was also a when I was great mixing, bass player. When I was mixing things, I would sit and just listen to that strum. It was like an amazing strum yeah. he could get out of an electric guitar. To this day, to this day, I don't think there's much going on that could come close to what the Belmont Underground did, does, is not Will even be. not even close, not even in the universe. It's true. We were not kidding around. For real, love and loved Andy, loved that Andy. You know, he, he knew exactly what it was. He said, here you go. 
Did he have a particular favorite song from the first album? All Tomorrow's Parties. What did he like about it? I never asked him that. But he just said he liked it and that was it. He said, he said oh, you know, some of the, that's my favorite. I don't <laughs> he said, me too. <laughs> Doug, when did you actually first see the Velvets? Did you see them play um, in Boston before you joined? Because I think Sterling actually stayed with you for a while while they were up in yeah, Boston. Yeah, in the, in the apartment that I was staying at in River Street. But the first time I saw the band was um, at a Harvard party, and John was absent that night. He was sick, and um, it was a real dark, crowded room, and it was just, uh, it was very intense, a lot of energy, and uh, it, was, uh, it sort of changed my life just because I started thinking of music totally differently at that point, from that point on. What were your impressions of, say, the songs? Because in time, you would actually end up playing a lot of those songs, too. Um, just the, the energy and the, uh, the, the uh, it was real basic and real in your face and you couldn't go get away from it even though it was you know, a small room. Did you get a sense of what they were about, the, the kind of people that were populating these, these songs? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not for many years. <laughs> but, uh, but I liked it the first time I heard it. It was, you know, it was an instant thing and I almost didn't go that night, someone said. Oh, come on, we'll go to a party. Yeah. What was it like to actually sing some of them? Because you would end up singing things like Candy Says and Who Loves the Sun. Did you get a sense of, you know, who these, like Candy Says is about Candy, darling? No, I was really naive. <laughs> I, I really didn't know much of anything. I was, grew up on Long Island and very seldom came to the city. And, you know, so I really, uh, it was just a pretty song to me at that point. But over the years... What was Sterling like as a roommate if he stayed in your apartment? <laughs> he was, uh, Sterling was great. I, I, he was very large, yeah. <laughs> I remember very doing, tall. I remember doing, uh, him doing interviews in, in motel rooms, and I'd be sitting on the bed listening to him, and he would just you know, be holding forth with the press <laughs> and, and uh, in the way he did. And, uh, but, yeah, he was, he was a great roommate. We had a great time. Well, I remember interviewing him, and he, was, he has very fiercely outspoken, articulate, and yeah, literate. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember that um, at his memorial service, Dean Wareham of Luna said that he was, Sterling was the only guy he knew who could talk about Moby Dick and the rock band Moby Grape with equal passion and authority, <laughs> which was one of the favorite things I heard that day. Um, Lou, in writing the songs, particularly for the first record, the ones that Nico ended up singing, did you feel you were writing for that voice, or was that voice good for the songs? Oh, At what I, stage I, were those I songs? I wasn't writing. No, they were done. I was, were. wasn't writing it for her voice. Mm -hmm. um, it was just they fit her. Because Andy said we needed a chanteuse. <laughs> Used the word chanteuse. <laughs> yeah, because none of us were good looking enough. <laughs> You've got to have somebody. Um, so there, there she was. Did you try her out on different songs other than the ones that she ended up singing? Oh, there's a whole bunch of songs that we did that aren't recorded that she was singing on. There was one, one of my favorites, uh, 
long thing called Melody Laughter. Oh, that song, yes. that song drove me crazy. <laughs> In a good way or bad way? Bad. <laughs> Uh-oh. No, 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 only because it, was, it would, could be anywhere from five minutes to 40. And it was total lunacy except for me counting, literally counting in my head, trying not to, to lose it. Well, the bootleg version I have is 29 minutes long, oh, so I know exactly see. what you're saying. 29 minutes of torture for Mo. <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes we tuned for 29 minutes. Yeah, uh, that's true. <laughs> Actually, Lou, I wanted to ask you about some records that you've talked about, singles that you've talked about over the years that are favorites, things that, um, I don't know how much they've influenced you or just uh, been a model for what great songwriting can be. Um, one of them is by the excellence, Coney Island Baby. One of the great songs, a doo-wop song. It's just a doo-wop song. But it's a really good one, but... That's what it is. Was that a New York group? Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Did you hear it on the like on the radio, Alan Freed or whatever? I must have. Yeah. I'm. I'm. You know, I listened to the radio a lot then. But it was it was that kind of song, that kind of group. And the B side was very good. What was the B side? I think it was "Tell Me Why," but I'm not sure. Those kind of songs made me think I could write a song. And when I was 14 in high school, I did. I wrote a perfect mimic of those kind of songs. So Blue. So Blue, and the other side was Leave It For Me. I didn't even sing it. I was just, you know, the, the background guitar player. But on that record was Mickey Baker. Oh, for Mickey King, and Sylvia. And King Curtis. Whoa. And I was trying to study the Mickey Baker guitar chord book, the same Mickey Baker. There's no way. <laughs> he could stretch from here to here. It was unbelievable. Um, another record that you've mentioned, and actually it's one of mine. I mean, can you imagine you're 14 years old and you're playing with King Curtis? I mean, not in the same room at the same time. <laughs> But still, King Curtis, my God, Mickey Baker. I used to go up to Harlem with all these songs after that to try to see if I get the, you know, the Jesters or the Flamingos or the Diablos to record one of these things that I was writing out on Long Island. That, I guess that was another song that you, you've cited is The Wind by Nolan Strong and the Diablos. Oh, poetry and rock. There it is. If I could really sing, I would be Nolan Strong. Did you ever try? Not that kind of singing, no. When did you actually figure out the kind of voice you had? It took a long time to figure out how I could earn my stripes to do certain kinds of things. So I put my energy into the phrasing and all the rest of it because limited range is a limited range. Because you sort of came to accept that your range was very specific. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now, the, but now they have software. That's true. 
but they can't do it like you. It's, um, no software. It took a long time. It's like anything else. It's like I didn't grow up in a farm listening to certain things and doing this, that, and the other thing. I was from, from the city and all this. So you only get it by playing. So like lots of playing, playing over and over and over and over and over and over. And we used to have a thing in the Velvet Underground because we knew, we, you know, we knew all this. And it was that, it was like a $10 fine if you play a blues lick. It was like not allowed because it was not legit. They had all these white guys out there playing blues, didn't want anything to do with that. Wanted to create our own, own legit pure thing. And yet, a I was lot telling of, Maureen the yeah. thing about her drumming is incredibly pure. There's no one else like that. No one else even thinks like that. To and do yet, a lot it of like your that. seminal like records, like, you're talking of which are rhythm and blues records, Nolan Strong, well, The you, Excellence, Eddie and Ernie, Outcast. If you scratch any of my songs, that's what they really are. Sure, yeah. but it, to me, it's like a sonnet. It's got 14 lines, and there you go, A, B, A, B, A, B. One other record I want to ask you about, Ornette Coleman, Lonely uh, Woman. You know, I'm doing this radio show, Me and Wilner, called uh, New York Shuffle, and the theme song is Lonely Woman by Ornette. And I finally got to actually play with Ornette and Don Cherry. Yeah. Major thrills. But Ornette changed my way of thinking about playing guitar forever. Did you go to see him when he was playing in New York in the early oh, 60s? Oh, yeah. I, would, I couldn't afford to get in. I'd be outside by the grating or a window. What was it about his playing, his concept of harmony, melody, rhythm that you felt was applicable to the guitar? I don't know. It's just there are certain people with such genius in five seconds you know who it is. That kind of melody. Vin Vendors once said to me, what's your favorite, favorite song of anything? I said, Lonely Woman. It's interesting because... That melody, yeah. no one else can do melodies like it's that. It's also a very right beautiful, mournful... It's, it's, it's not by any means free jazz. It's actually but quite it's beautiful also and constructed. Yeah. Well, that's his, and, that's and his Texas change roots. Change of the Century, the track called Ramblin'. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's the blues again. It's, in a way, it's as if you found a way to take that blues element and shear away everything that was cliched about it and just go to, as you say, go to the pure source. I got to play with Jimmy Scott, and, and at one point he said to me, you're okay with this. You don't have to think about that anymore. You don't have to worry about that. It's okay. So I took that to heart. I mean, this is 20 years later or something. Yeah. Uh, Doug, what were your... In, yeah, yeah, you're not getting away. <laughs> um, what were your seminal influences, records that mattered to you, things that maybe prepared you for stepping in to be a member of the Velvets? Well, I, um, I listened to everything that my parents and my older 
the sister listened to. So it was everything from uh, classical and jazz, early jazz and and uh, mainstream jazz to um, uh, you know fifties doo-wop and popular music uh, and everything, just you know, kind of all together. Were there particular um, was there a particular style of singing and playing that you think prepared you for? joining the Velvets? Because in a sense, you kind of jumped in pretty quick. You joined at the beginning of October, and about a week later, you were playing in Cleveland at Lacave. It's actually three days. Two oh, three days. days. Two days, yeah. Without much rehearsal, I'm guessing. For he was three a days. trooper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, just, uh, I went to Lou's Loft, and we rehearsed for two days, just learning songs and going through them and going through them and going through them. What was it like being in the middle of the sound by then? You knew you had seen the band play and clearly it had an effect on you, but then to step into the middle of it. I don't know. It was just the band. You know, we were just playing. It was, uh, I was sort of running to try not to make too many mistakes and trying to keep up. And, <laughs> and, uh, but it's, it's not that same uh, sort of essential, uh, I don't know, the clarity that exists within the group makes it easier to get into it, to just become part of it. To, uh, you know, it's not like a lot of complicated arrangements. A lot of it's just paying attention, listening. Yeah. Yeah. Did he change your style of drumming in any way? Was it was there a difference in playing with a different mm, bass that, player creating yeah. that bottom? No, no, no. But she changed the way I played <laughs> bass. <laughs> How? What did you, what did, what did you do different? Um, well, for one thing, when Mo plays drums, it's just, it's complete power. I mean, she's just, she's holding that bottom down totally, and she's in control of it. I've never seen anyone work as hard in a show as I've seen Mo work. I Me mean, and James never, Brown. Yeah, you, Mo, <laughs> you work harder than he does. No, but she would finish, on a hot night, she would finish, and she would just be drenched in sweat. I mean, literally just working. You know, working to do to do what she does, but it, because she was so solid, it opened up um, areas for me on the bass that because um, I have a very melodic sense of the bass, as because I played baritone and tuba, and so it, it's a little different than a lot of bass players. Uh, and because she's so solid, I can I could move around more, you know. So it made it it was like heaven for me. I just loved it. Cool. I've never found another drummer that you could do that with, you know? Really. What could you actually hear on stage? Mostly Lou. Because he, <laughs> he was a noisy little guy. <laughs> he, he was right next to me. And, well, He's I, not here, so you can say it, whatever you yeah, want. Okay. <laughs> so whenever, when he would, uh, like if he was doing feedback, it was just like a wall went up and I couldn't hear anything from anybody else. But when he wasn't being, doing that, um, I listened to Sterling, mostly, who was next to, to um, Lou, uh, or tried to hear him anyway. And as I had told you this afternoon, there were times when I didn't know where the hell we were in the song. I'd have to look at Lou's mouth to see where he was in the lyrics, because um, I really couldn't hear anything. I mean, you hear a cassophony, but that doesn't help. <laughs> Was the, was the volume a problem? Because one of the things that you listen to those records, and even on records, they sound intense and loud and very, very assaultive. It didn't. It never. It never felt like to me anyway. It never felt like it, we were too loud. However, my ears ring. 
now. <laughs> well, what was it like in the studio? You listen to a record like Sister Ray, and it just sounds like... Well, obviously, it was of just course, complete. not as loud as, as on stage, but still, yeah. you had to have that... You have to have... When you're playing rock and roll or any music, I suppose, you've got to have volume or you just... You don't feel it, you know? Yeah. Um, actually, Lou, Lou remembers this, I'm sure. I think it was when we were recording Sister Ray and the, the poor engineer <laughs> was ready to that. cry because the needle was like, bong. <laughs> 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 and the, the engineer didn't know what to do. But Don't you remember what he said? No. He said, I don't have to listen to this shit. <laughs> <laughs> he says... I'm, I'm going out, and when, when you guys are done fucking around, right, let me know. <laughs> I don't know. I define fucking around differently. Um. <laughs> One of the photos... You know, when you yes. say us and them mentality, it yeah. was no joke. Did it, was it, did and you, it, did and you, it was every last centi centimeter with those people. You genuinely felt like you were outcasts. Not outcasts. They're stupid. At war. Okay. Stupid. Not outcasts. Trying, we were trying to do a very specific thing. We're not dumb. And I have to sit there and listen to that stuff from those people endlessly fighting with them. Endlessly fighting with them. And when Andy was there, you know, he was like the shield, but when he, when he wasn't, there was just us. So it got hard. Well, when it, when you left Andy, did, was that liberating in some way that you were now on your own and pursuing your own your own destiny, or did that make it harder because you had more of them to deal with? Well, I was watching Andy. It's like you know, he would move on to other things at some point, and he had said to me, he said, you know. Yeah, you should make your mind up what you want to do. Do you want to keep doing art galleries? Or do you want to do something else and branch out? That was it. Looking through the book, you look at particularly that year of 66, some of the gigs that you end up playing, you look at these posters, there is one from, I guess, September of 66, where you're playing the Chrysler Art Museum in Provincetown, Massachusetts, which is very, got a nice tony sound to it. Well, about a month later, later you're playing, oh, how did it come out? A Halloween mod happening at Leicester Airport in Leicester, Mass. You played in an airplane hangar. Let me tell you what happened with that. <laughs> Please. It was an it was an airplane hangar, and uh, we were, you know, tuning and all of this, and it's like a football field. It's an, it's an airplane hangar, and I'd put a new set of strings on the guitar, so it had a long, you know, hadn't cut them yet, and I'm turning over there, and and suddenly Sterl said, "Don't move." I said, why? You don't move. So I didn't move. And it's like the guitar string, it hit the mic and it wasn't grounded and it had burnt it <laughs> straight down to the peg. 
And then a little later, a guy from the Yardbirds did get electrocuted that way. Wow, that could have been the vendors of Velvet Underground very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> no one knew anything then. Yeah. About any, like, ele <laughs> ele the whole idea of electronics or an amplified voice was pretty new. Amplifying anything, having the voice be amplified, mic'd, mixing was unheard of as whoever was loudest. <laughs> I, guess, I guess in a way Andy's great strength was he recognized what you did and what was possible, but as an actual rock manager to take a band, out, as you say, outside of the art museums, it was, he, he, he just didn't have that language together. Have you checked what his last painting sold for? Well, I'm... <laughs> yes, actually, I did. He was... 23 million. He's doing much better than most band managers, yes. <laughs> um, well, then, actually, let me ask you this. The difference between being... Okay. The difference between being art and the, work, the life of a working band. Could you tell the difference as soon as you went out and started doing things on your own with the third record? Because you toured a lot from like 68 but, through but 70. But we, we were just doing what we do. It's not like we changed it or did something. We went out minus Andy, minus all those people mm -hmm. who would go out. And we just did, this, we did the same thing minus all that. And uh, the jobs were very limited. Where'd we play? In Ohio and Boston. Those big, big venues for us. Actually, you played in Boston 40 times between 68 and 70. You spent more time at the Boston Tea Party than you ever did in New York. When, when Andy was out of it, that was us, that finished us for New York, because when we played in New York, first it was the, the Polish National Home, then it was the gymnasium. Yeah. And the minute he went there, these money guys came over and took it. So it became like the electric circus. Yeah. I've always hated business people. <laughs> With some good reasons. Yeah, <laughs> I say that. What was it about Boston, though, that you really Boston Tea there? Party. Tea that, party. Was the, that was the room. That was it. Well, because they, they would hire us. And then out in... <laughs> good reason. Out in... Uh, what was it? Akron or Cleveland? No. Was it Akron or Cleveland? Is it, Cleveland. 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 Yeah, Cleveland. They would hire us. Those two places. Since one, so one day I'm going through the airport or something, the guy comes up to me, he said, remember me? I said, oh, please. You know, <laughs> I, said, you know, you know I was in the second row in 1973. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great for you, you know. And he, he was the owner of La Cave, and he, he, it had become a software store. And he was, a, he was oh, now a computer person. <laughs> Well, you didn't do as well in San Francisco. Um, we kicked well, it. Well, we you had a very interesting love-hate relationship because your first trip there was not very good. 
because you played at the Fillmore in 66, and yet you went back there and spent like a good month there in 69. We, we were okay, it's yeah. the press wasn't okay, yeah. Rolling Stone wasn't okay. Actually, well, wait a minute, I was in high school at the time, so don't... <laughs> Ralph Gleason. In the San Francisco it's Chronicle. Ralph Gleason, you know, the, uh, you know, I like fancy. Fancy, right? Writes an editorial in Rolling Stone about how if you're for free speech, if you're for Lenny Bruce, you're stuck with trying to defend the likes of the Velvet Underground. Um, one of the, actually, I can quote this. Um, you brought it. I brought it. Camp plus con equals nothing. <laughs> He, he really went to town. It was, all, oh, it was all very campy and very Greenwich Village sick. Uh, San Francisco had some issues at the time, but... It wasn't San Francisco, it was him and Rolling Stone. No, actually, this was in the, the Chronicle. People, oh, okay, the Chronicle. But, um, Nevertheless, we, we never your had point a, is taken. We never had a problem with the people. I mean, we walked into the... Uh, not the, I don't know if it's the film or the Avalon. Family dog and, and the Matrix. And their idea of a light show. <laughs> their idea of a light show is like they've got a, a, little, a little plate with some oil on it. And they're heating it and a picture boot in back. <laughs> California said, okay. You've got to be kidding. But there was actually one thing like you said. the people were great. There was actually one thing you said that was interesting in an interview later. Only um, one? Well, no, there were many, but I don't have time for them all. Um, you were talking about vast objections to the whole San Francisco music scene. Um, talking about the airplane and the dead, with the exception of Credence, who I like a lot. Like he's doing this, Credence Clearwater, like he, meaning John Fogarty, he's doing this incredible link up between that old force and he still got a contemporary feel. Was, that, was he somebody you really listened to? You know, secondhand quotes, never, uh, I never take them very seriously when someone says, you said, and they're reading from what? From what? You know, like, did I say it? I don't know if I said it. You'd have to ask me now. <laughs> what do quote. I think? I don't, know, I don't know who you're quoting, quoting. Uh, actually, I'm quoting you. No, you're quoting me from someone else quoting me. It's uh, actually Third Ear Magazine, and it's reprinted in the New York art book. What does that mean? I don't know. It's in the fucking book. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I it's love Johan, but there's two mistakes on page two. You know, oh. like, I mean, okay. that's, that's part of the whole thing. Andy always loved it. You know, Wikipedia had, you know, the entry on me at the beginning, it says, Lou Reed born Louis Furbank. It's like, <laughs> you can't buy this, you know. Well, I didn't and I couldn't get in there to edit it to change it. <laughs> so then this moron from the Daily News, Hockney, whatever the hell his name is. So he, he does a real rip apart of me. And he starts as like Lou Reed, you know, Louis, Lou, uh, what is it, uh, Feinberg, whatever, whatever, Louis F Furbank. <laughs> so 
we got in touch with the Daily News. I don't give a fuck about this. But you want to see my driver's license? <laughs> and they said, we stand by our source. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Next. <laughs> Okay, no more secondhand quotes. Um, one thing about the book, actually, New York Art, that I feel is really strong is it is a really great visual history of the group. And with the cover art, the photo portraits, things that Andy created with the banana, obviously the visual was really essential to the life of the band and basically the legacy that we're here to talk about today. But did you have an early visual sense of what you wanted the Velvets to look like, to project? You were actually, you know, early on, even before Andy saw you, you were playing with underground filmmakers, about, which is about imagery and, and uh, presentation. Did you have any idea what you wanted the band to look like, to feel like, to present outside, beyond the music? I don't think any of us had a... a a vision of let's sound like our wardrobe. <laughs> All that black. Sound like this. Is that what you, you mean? Like Well, that's just like part it? of it, really. Part of the black thing is because Andy was projecting movies and the sunglasses was also the same thing. It was blinding and, and the strobes. And then he, he, he's so smart. He would take some of these movies and pictures and make them in geometric shapes, no curves, and then pro project it on black, so we were like human screens for his uh, potpourri of images. I mean, there's a famous photo with John and a big thing of an, big thing of an eye and it's his yeah. eye, and, you know, random. But we never, you know, so we just stayed that way, which is also the cheapest way. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Did you talk much with him about the visuals, like the banana? Did he say, I have a great idea for your album cover, a peelable banana? No, what he said was, oh, <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> we have to do a cover, oh, no. <laughs> and someone, you know, who knows where the idea is? Everybody was, was there. But I mean, the thing about the banana is you peel it. <laughs> that's, that's when the fun started for Andy. You know, no one ever saw a pink banana. Then later on, he did the same idea with the Rolling Stones, except he put a zipper on it. Yeah. It's like, you, know, you already did that. <laughs> <laughs> but it's how many years behind? Yeah. Well, it's also it, it seems like in many ways he had a he had a real passion for what you did, and that gave him almost a license to do what he did in terms of things like that. The cover of, of White Light White Heat, just the idea of the visuals. You know, you were part of something very seminal for him as an artist. I love the cover of White Light White Heat, like. All these reprints, I don't know if they keep. The original one was one of the guys there had a tattoo. Yeah. 
Yeah. It does mm -hmm. have a tattoo on his yeah. shoulder. Yeah. And you, you can only see it. I mean, no one knew this, but by the, when they put shrink wrap over it, it disappeared. Yeah. So it looked like a black cover. But then when you took this thing off, said, you know, imagine people were stoned. They go, hey, what's that? <laughs> what's that? <laughs> the cover's moving. Actually, the book has the original still from the movie from which the tattoo was taken. It's really worth seeing. Uh, I'd never seen that photo before. The original Andy movie. Yes, the original Andy movie. Because um, there's actually a wonderful picture, and this is pre-Andy. Uh, Donald Greenhouse had done a series, I guess, a bunch of photos. I grew up with Donald. I knew him since the fifth grade. Wow. Fifth grade in Atkinson Public School. <laughs> Shout out. Because <laughs> yeah. there's a photo of the four of you with, with Angus standing on, on, Ludlow stoop, Street, on the Ludlow on the Street. Stoop. And it's a really great portrait because John has the suit and he's all dapper. Sterling is up in the corner looking kind of, um, I don't know, he's just looking at things very askance. Angus is wearing this satin bomber jacket. He sort of looks like one of the gang members in West Side Story, but with a beard. And you're wearing a burnous. Angus is burnous. Ah, well, Angus. There was, it was an interesting visual mix. Did you, and this was clearly a portrait, too, of some kind. This is what bands do. Just having fun. I, I guess someone said, do you have a photo of the band? Yeah. We said no. And they no. said, can you take get one? one? <laughs> uh, Donald, can you take a picture of us? <coughs> I don't uh, think there was an awful lot of planning going on early on. There wasn't by me, anyway. I think all of us were pretty much just, I always say this, and it sounds trite, but having a lot of fun. Yeah. And doing what we wanted to do and with no plan. So many people really do think that, that um, I mean, I've been asked this a lot, as if we schemed, for, like the sunglasses. Wow, who, who told you to wear sunglasses or like that? And that was just us. That's the way we were. Um, always wearing black. We, that's, we didn't all say, hey, let's wear black. That's cool. That's just the way we were. Yeah. And I think that we all were ourselves in all ways, including music. And I, it's, it's hard to explain what I mean. I think the, four, the, the different personalities were really very different. And when they all came, we all came together musically, it was just a whole different sound. Yeah. I didn't know, you, I couldn't play a role for a, a million dollars, honestly. Thank God. Because <laughs> once you know how to do that, you can't resist. Yeah. And my, my, my um, basic, it's not even a skill, my basic uh, playing is because I didn't know how to do other stuff and I didn't want to know. There's actually a kind of discipline in that, knowing that this is, this is the pursuit and not to add things that are unnecessary or add something that someone else tells you is cool. It's just, yeah. this, is, this is why we are together and playing this music at this particular point. And I think one of the reasons that 
we're all here, why that record means so much to me, why any of the, those four records mean so much to me is that they're evidence of a band that decided this is what we are going to do. And the pursuit of that is paramount. Everything else is just daily life or occasional trouble, the odd brick wall. But yeah. you were determined to go from start to wherever the finish was. That's not a question, that's a statement. <laughs> it's a statement of affection. Um, it is actually quite strange, however, to see the Velvet's name on a lot of psychedelic ballroom posters because you played at places like the Avalon, the Hippodrome in San Diego, and you were actually on bills with, uh, actually there's one that, it's a really beautiful poster at the Shrine Auditorium in LA, and you were on the bill with the Butterfield Blues Band and Sly and the Family Stone. Cool. It must have been great. <laughs> if anyone finds the tapes, please bring them to our attention. I would like to see. <laughs> I don't remember that. Imagine? Did you ever get a sense of like when in playing? We opened for Bobby Blue Bland. Our first gig wow. in San Francisco was a blues club, where somehow. <laughs> <laughs> in down, down, downtown San Francisco, we're, we're booked into this black club where but we're opening for Bobby Blue Bland. We're playing exactly the same music. <laughs> and they were very polite to us. <laughs> now, you got to imagine doing heroin in this club in 1966. And then he comes out and does farther on up the and road. And he comes out and does a Shine Your Love Light. Yeah. You know, and we all swooned. Another first gig was, what was it, Vancouver? The opening act was a woman contortionist, remember? <laughs> Something crazy, I don't remember exactly, yeah. Compatible booking. You had a great booking agent. You know, one minute it's Sly and Bobby Blue Bland, the next minute you're doing circus acts. Weird, right? We were diverse. Well, in a way, you were actually kind of at the, that period was really the forefront of a lot of what people take for granted now, which is the mechanics of touring, of putting together bills. And, and you were, with like a lot of bands in that period, you were kind of out in the unknown. I remember when we, when we went out with Andy, right, and we we're driving back from L.A., and Nico was driving, oh, and we, oh, my God. Nico and we got stopped by the cops, and I said, Who's in charge here? And it's Nico. He <laughs> said, oh my. And, and everybody pushes Andy up front. <laughs> it's fantastic. That's when they told us to get out of town, literally. Yeah, yeah. they said, you, you're really near the state line. Why don't you cross it? <laughs> and the, the bus was broken, nice so we couldn't. reception. The bus was broken, remember? It was... It oh. was so we had a, they let us stay overnight at a motel, but the next, he actually said to please be across the state line by noon tomorrow. <laughs> and all we were doing was making music. <laughs> I'm looking at him. Um, I think we'll take questions from the audience. Okay, if you got something. What do you got for me? I, I have, we have about 120, <laughs> and I decided to only take 110. So, the first question is, as a group, what is your most sentimental memory of Mr. Warhol? 
or as individuals. One of my sentimental memories is chasing Andy around the factory to get $5 for gas to go home. <laughs> That's romantic. <laughs> Did you get it? Yes. <laughs> Two. Two. Did you actually ever, did you ever meet Andy? Can you tell us? You got a mic. It was, uh, it was at a party at the factory. It was just after I joined the band and, um, uh, you know, we're just all hanging out there. That's all. That's the only time I ever met him. What was it like to be at the factory? Because that must have been, a, was that a first time visit for you? It's kind of like being on acid, you know, <laughs> it just eyes wide, you know, like, you know, very intense, a lot going on. Could uh, the Velvets do what they uh, did in 2009 as a new band? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, actually, yeah, absolutely. We're just we're the, we're us. We would still do the same thing we did then, I think. Well, I was actually that sort of goes with something that I had been thinking about, which is that, you know, the what you did musically, the things you were writing about, the people that were populating the factory, the streets, the 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 scene itself, you know, were very much of a specific intersection of art, film, music. There was an energy at that particular time. Can you imagine something like that? happening now with, say, a younger band, a, young, a younger mirror image of yourselves in New York the way it is now? Because the city has changed in mm. good ways and in ways that I know a lot of people I aren't as happy been, about. I haven't been here for a long time. I haven't lived here for a real long time. But from what I hear and read, I don't think so. I think uh, New York has made it very difficult for artists and of any genre. So this, I was, I was just saying to once one of my kids, I guess today, when we were running around, I didn't live in the city, but the guys did, and you could get an apartment for $100 a month, or maybe 60 even, and that you could scrape together, but yeah. you sure as hell couldn't scrape together what you need to have an apartment today. So any young artists or photographers um, writers, whatever, you can't live in New York. And I think that takes a, a lot away from New York. Really takes a lot away from it. How has New York changed for you? Like, what do you see? Because you write about New York. You wrote an entire album called New York. Well, I think, I think there's, <coughs> although the price is going up, there's a lot of places in Brooklyn. Brooklyn in the house. There's a lot of great groups in Brooklyn, and all these young bands like with, uh, can record without having to go to recording studios, so you don't need money for that anymore. So that's something where they, they have a real advantage. There's no more them. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, the stupid ones. <laughs> they. <laughs> the ever-present they. <laughs> you know, if you want to have a live drummer, you need a studio. That's the problem. That's, you know, it's, it's a whole different world if you have make-believe drums. But if you want to have a real drummer, that's going to drown out everything else and get you thrown out. <laughs> <laughs> Some things never change. Um, Precisely. But they're out there. I mean, you know, there are these groups all over the place. 
you know, but is it intersecting with everything else? I don't know, because I'm not part of that. The, the question here maybe goes to that point. Uh, what are your thoughts about the enormous proliferation of unofficial velvet underground material circulating via the internet? I wish I had read that clause that says future technology. <laughs> oh, the one that says, you know, for rights in the, in the whole known universe. I've seen that on a couple of contracts, yeah. Are you surprised by the amount of material that has come out, things that were recorded? Obviously, the Robert Quine uh, tapes that became that box set a few years ago. And obviously, these long end of Cole Avenue. Long before that, uh, this magician from Penn and Teller comes over once. He says, you know, I'm, I'm the, uh, the head of the Velvet Underground fan club, blah, 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 blah. And here, you know, he gives me a bag, 30 cassettes of how he ever got it. I mean, that's pre-internet. Yeah. I mean, it was always there. It was just never so much of it available to everybody. But now you go to YouTube and there it is. Are you, were you surprised even then that the band was documented as thoroughly by unofficial, by just fans, you know, guys with tape recorders going or Club owners I've just never running the reels. Never understood it, not for a second. But has it has it helped and increased the legacy in any way? Does it matter in addition to the four records? I'm just a songwriter. <laughs> I'm a collector. Be before we go to the last question, I want to um, thank everybody for coming. I uh, also want to tell you that there'll be a book signing which will last about 16 minutes, so stand in line quickly. And the, the last question is, how would you feel if you were asked 40 years ago, if you, if you knew 40 years ago that you would be interviewed here at the New York Public Library, would you have believed it? I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, I know that. I, I was not capable of thinking 40 years ahead. <laughs> Thank you very much. The end. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review. It really helps us out a lot. You can follow NYPL on Twitter or Facebook and sign up for our newsletter at nypl.org.